Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. If you're just joining us for the first time today, we've been doing a series through the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one of the prophets of the Old Testament, one of the bigger prophets. He wouldn't be considered a minor prophet, one of the larger prophets. We're going to be turning today, before we get there on the screen, uh, to, and I don't see my screen, but before we get there, we're going to go to Isaiah 37. And this is where we find the valley of dry bones. So we're going to be talking about death today. It's an exciting topic. Actually, we're going to be talking about death and life. Um, There are three types of death. Did you know that? Not spiritually speaking, but physically speaking. According to LifeSource, a nonprofit eye, organ, and tissue donation organization, These three medical definitions of death are as follows. The first one is clinical death. I was taught about this when I was an EMT. Clinical death is when the heart stops and the breathing stops. You have no more than five minutes before the brain starts to die in clinical death. You have an opportunity to come back to life without any damage within the first five minutes of clinical death. Again, heart stops, no breathing. There's a second death called brain death. Brain death is the cessation of brain activity and the inability of the brain to carry out the proper functions necessary to sustain life. Your brain is like the computer of your body. It is the running system. If it gets a virus, the whole body becomes affected, right? The brain is the central hub that tells every other aspect of your body where and how to function, okay, and how to function normally. If it dies, the rest of the body is affected. If it dies completely, you can be kept on life support to keep the rest of the organs and stuff functioning Rare in certain cases, but they say brain death is irreversible. And I would add the caveat, except for God, who is able to overcome that, okay? The third is what we call legal death. Legal death involves irreversible cardiac and respiratory cessation and irreversible brain death function and requires the examination, determination, and sign-off of a qualified medical professional. This is when the coroner comes in and says, yep, they're dead, okay? It's where we hear the dead on arrival, DOA. Uh, When I was an EMT, however, and again, I studied right out of high school. I have on on my uh, my stepdad's side of the family, almost everyone on that side of the family is an emergency medical professional, whether it's a fireman, firewoman, I don't know, I don't want to get all into the, you know, particulars of gender equality in those fields, but you know what I'm talking about. Policemen, policewomen, EMTs, paramedics, a lot of my family on that side of the family are frontline professionals who rush into situations of an, a nature of an emergency. So I spent two years out of high school doing that along with other jobs on the side. And uh, you have to go through a certification, pass all of those with 100%. Did you know that? You couldn't be 98% on any of the five tests I had to take as an EMT. You don't want an EMT coming to you only having passed with 90% or 95%, just as you wouldn't want to go into surgery with a doctor who got C's. Of course, they don't show that on, you know, in, in the waiting room. Yeah, I passed with a solid C average, you know. You just don't want to know that stuff. But they required EMTs to pass every specific area of every test perfectly, or you did not get certified. One of the most important things we learned is what we call CPR. Does anybody know what that is? Cardiopulmonary resuscitation. It involves, or it has changed in 20 years 
25 years since I was an EMT. I was trained and raised in Kentucky as an EMT there. It's pretty standard across the lines and across state lines. In my day, you did 15 compressions to two breaths for 60 seconds. So you should get in four sets of compressions and four sets of breaths, okay? And then you stop and you check the pulse to see if the heart has started beating. And then you lean your ear to the mouth to see if there's any faint breath against your ear. The ear is the most sensitive part of the body to feel those things. And so when you're compressing, what does that do? And when you're compressing the chest, and I was always told, you're going to break ribs. Don't be alarmed by it. When you're compressing the chest, you have to do an inch and a half to two inch compressions, and you're going to crack some ribs. It's better for them to have broken ribs than a dead body. And so you compress enough to pump the heart. The heart pumps all of the blood through the rest of the body, the organs and everything else. The reason you do that is because the heart is stopped. And you want to start the circulation process manually until maybe the heart engages again with electrical impulses and starts beating on its own. The second thing we were told to do, which I believe they don't do now, I could be wrong, is artificial breaths. And so they gave us in our packet a little cushion to put over the mouth because we don't like to put our mouths on other people's mouths so that it could be a little more hygienic. But if you didn't have that, you're just out of luck. You got to pinch the nose, tilt the head back, and blow in and watch the chest rise. And you had to not just do little puffs like they do on TV. They do it horribly wrong. You see the compressions like boop, boop. Of course, you don't want to break an actor's ribs, but you know what I'm talking about. So that process of breathing air into the lungs <clears throat> forces enough oxygen, even if it's coming out of you, you don't just breathe out CO2. You do also breathe out oxygen and other gases. But there's enough exhalation of oxygen through your outward breath to put oxygen into the lungs so that it fills the lungs. And then when you're pumping the heart, the heart is taking the oxygen from the lungs and pumping it to the rest of the body. It can take, you can actually do successful CPR for a period of two hours and still have success. So a person's heart can stop, they can stop breathing, but you can artificially pump their heart and breathe for them at least two hours. There are records in the books that are longer than that, but I digress. So what I'm telling you is, it is possible to sustain life, even after death, clinical death. I want to talk to you today about a passage from Ezekiel 37. I'm going to look at 14 verses, the first 14. And as we consider the life-saving procedures of CPR and those kind of things today, as we explore Ezekiel, we're exploring this famous passage called the Valley of Dry Bones. Now, this is a vision that Ezekiel was taken to with God. As has been the case up to this point, God comes to Ezekiel and he says, hey, let me take you somewhere. And so he puts him in this not trance-like state, but in this visionary kind of place where he is taken in his mind's eye to a valley. And God takes him there in spirit to see this valley. And this valley is laid out with dry bones. Now, dry bones indicate what? They've been there a while. They've been there long enough for the body to have completely decayed and the flesh to have blown into dust. And they've been there long enough that there is no flesh at all anywhere and they are sun-bleached to their completely dry. This valley of dry bones, God asks Ezekiel a question, which we'll find in a moment. And that question is one that I wonder how the rest of us would answer if we were there. Because it's, a, it's, a, it's, an answer, it's a question of faith, but his answer should also be an answer of faith. And so let's take a look. Ezekiel 37, we're going to start with verse 1. The Lord took hold of me. I love that. 
I love the way this version of Scripture writes that. New Living Translation. Has the Lord ever taken hold of you? And I don't mean like this. <laughs> Sometimes he might, out of love. But has the Lord ever taken hold of you? Think about those words. The Lord took hold of me, Ezekiel says. And I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He, he led me all around the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. And then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? What do you do with a question like that? I mean, Ezekiel, we don't know what age he is, but he's probably up in years enough by this point. Ezekiel's lived enough life where he's seen people die. In the Jewish tradition, they have tombs that are carved into the sides of cliffs or rock walls. Freshly hewn tombs. One like Jesus would have been laid in when he was crucified, after he was crucified. They would have rolled a large stone over the entrance and sealed it so that the smell of decaying bodies would not get out. Ezekiel had seen this. My guess is he had been a part of it on several occasions, these mourning rituals and burials. These tombs would have had little niches cut into the sides of inside of the tomb. There would have been a slab like a large table cut out of the stone, where the freshly dead person would have been laid. They would have been wrapped head to toe with a burial cloth wrapped specifically over the head. They would have had incense and spices laid all over the whole body to at least deter some of the smell of the decay. And they would have laid there for a period of six to nine months until the flesh was completely gone. Ezekiel, I'm sure, knew the process of death, especially being a priest and a prophet. After the flesh had completely gone away and the bones were left of the person who had laid on the slab, they would cut or unwrap the wrappings from the body and collect the bones and put them in what's called an ossuary. An ossuary is basically a bone box. And they would have been about two and a half, somewhere upwards of three feet long, about a foot to a foot and a half wide, and maybe a foot to a foot and a half deep. And all the bones would have been gathered together and put in that small box and put in the niche that was carved out just for the size of that ossuary. This is why when you read in the Old Testament that people were laid to rest with their ancestors. They literally had family tombs where their parents, their grandparents, the great-great-grandparents would have been buried in these niches and have laid out on that slab centuries, decades before. Ezekiel knew death. So now God is asking him this question. You see this valley of bones. They've laid here long enough that the flesh is no longer there, and they've, quite, they've laid here even longer that they are completely dried out and baked by the sun. Can they live again? Can they become living persons again? As a pastor, I've seen death often. I've done many a funeral. I've sat by many a bedside while a person has breathed their last breath. It's tragic, sorrowful, sad, even for the believer in Christ, because there's a loss. I've watched caskets being lowered into graves and the vault being closed. I know intellectually as a minister of the gospel that that dead body, if that person was a believer in Jesus Christ, will be resurrected on, at the end of time to everlasting life that the spirit who is united with Christ will re be reunited with a resurrected body that's transformed into a body that will never taste death. 
the way Jesus' body was when he raised from the grave. I know this. But if I was in Ezekiel's place, the question on my mind would be, ah, God, I, I don't think so. And I, maybe? I, I, I don't know. But listen to his reply. Oh, sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. You see, he spoke truth, not doubt, because he knew the sole answer lay in the one who brought life to those bones in the first place before they died the first time. God, I, I, don't, I don't know, but you know the answer, and you are the one in whom I trust. Have you ever said that? When there seems to be something extremely impossible right in front of you, and God says, do you think the impossible is possible here? What's your reaction? That person you've prayed for forever. Maybe for years, maybe for decades. You know my story. If you don't, it's this. My stepfather, from the age of two years old, me, when I was two, was an unbelieving, stubborn son of a gun. He was a bear of a man to live around. He had his good qualities. I don't mean to make him out to be this horrible guy, but he was tough as nails. And when I became a believer in Christ at age 11, I remember praying for him for that time forward. My mom and I consistently started going to church. There were times growing up in my teenage years, my young adulthood years, and then hearing stories from my mom when I was away at college or living you know, as a married man with my wife in Ohio or Florida, where she's like, it's just unbearable at times. It's horrible. It's frustrating. And, and I remember begging her to divorce him because he's never going to change. But there was still this glimmer, this little sliver that I knew that God knew the answer to the question. Though everything in me said he will never come to faith, he is the most impossible man. And you know, if you've been around long enough, that two years before he died, he died in 2018, in 2016, he had a radical, true transformation. 30 years I prayed, and my mother prayed. Oh Lord, only you know the answer. So then... Elijah said, or excuse me, Ezekiel says, the Lord said to me, speak a prophetic message to these dry bones, to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke the message just as he told me. Suddenly, as I spoke, there was a, a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Imagine in your mind's eye what he is seeing. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones, and then skin formed to cover the bodies, but they still had no breath in them. And then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds son of man, speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the Lord says, come, O breath, from the four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so that they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and the breath came into their bodies, and they all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. 
And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old dry bones and all hope is gone. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that you're just going through the motions and that you're tired and frustrated? That nothing is ever going to be different than the way it is? And you just feel the passage of time creeping slowly over you. And some of us just pray for sweet death to come because we can't do this anymore. And though you're walking around, going through the motions and doing the daily routines, you've lost your will for life. You see, Ezekiel is talking about the exiles who have been thrown throughout the Babylonian kingdom and resettled in small towns or cities and villages in Babylon. They've lost everything. And they've become discouraged. If they are to believe the prophecies of God through Jeremiah if they are to believe them through Isaiah or Ezekiel, they know it's going to be a long time and they will not be back home. Some of them will never be able to go back to Jerusalem, to the city of God. So why are they? They're just subsisting. They're just living, but for what purpose? These bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old, dry bones, and all hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And when this happens, O oh people, you will know that I am the Lord. Do you know they lived in Jerusalem and Judah and Israel for all of those centuries, and they had forgotten that God was God? And they decided, let's add a little something extra to our lives. The country over that borders this side of us or the country over here or the people who continue to practice these other religions seem to have it all together. Let's just sprinkle in a little bit of their worship into ours so that we can feel a little bit different. But different isn't always better. If God is truly the same God yesterday, today, and forever, does he necessarily need to change in order to get our attentions, to get our allegiance and our worship? When we are driven by entertainment, by the next great thing, we often miss the most important things right in front of us. And the people of Israel did just that. They got bored with God, not because God is boring, but just like Eve and Adam in the garden, they had become deceived to believe there was something more than what they already had, something better than what they already had. Do you catch that? You hear me reference this all the time. I cannot not help but reference Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because this is where it was perfect and where it went off the rails and the enemy uses the same tactics with every generation. He takes the goodness of God and he just slightly tweaks it to make you think it's better than what God has to offer. You see, what did God offer Adam and Eve in the garden? He offered them everything they could ever want and more. He just said, don't eat of this one tree. And then the servant says, did God really say you shouldn't eat of the trees of the garden? 
And Eve corrected him, no, God said we could eat of all the trees except for this one, because if we eat it or touch it, we'll die. And then he does his masterful work of deception. Oh, no, 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 no. God knows if you eat of that tree, you'll become just like him, knowing both good and evil. Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be more like God? See, the reality was they didn't realize they were more like God in their innocent state in the garden before they ate the tree. The enemy wants you to believe there's something more that God has to offer than what he's given you already. And if he gives you any more than his death on a cross, I don't know what more he could give you. Once I raise you to new life again, once you see what I am able to do to bring death to life, you will then know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return home to your own land. And then you will know that I am the Lord. I, the Lord, have spoken and that I have done what I said. Yes, The Lord has spoken. Here's the key point. God can bring to life that was once that was what was once dead and gone. (laughs) Let me say that again. God can bring to life what was once dead and gone. But see, some of us don't want life to be brought back to what was once before. Because we've been hurt. When we think back to our past, it's not that we want things of the past to be resurrected that were bad, but there are good moments in our past, in our history, where God has done amazing things. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you may not know the amazing things that God has done because you've been blinded to it by your own selfishness and sinful desires. But even as believers in Christ, a lot of times we we don't, We don't remember enough of the past in order to not go back and repeat the bad things, but also we don't remember enough of the past to honor the God of the present and our future. To say, God, you have have been with me here, and you were with me there, and you were with me here, and those should be anchor points for your faith. When the people of Israel were starting to go off track, they shouldn't have been able to look back and say, you know what, my ancestors went through the same problems as we're going through, and they messed a lot of things up. Let's not do what they shouldn't have done, and let's do what they did when they were in their best, which was being completely locked into who God is. So let's look at this valley of dry bones. These dry bones in the valley represented the Jewish exiles in Babylon. The reality of their plight seemed hopeless, so hopeless that they lost sight of God even in exile. Bruce Falter writes, significant features of the bones that the prophet saw in his vision were their numbers and aridity. The people from whom these bones came were dead for a long time. There could be no reasonable hope that these bones could be part of a living body again. Now, I want you to think, by the time we get to Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is a prophet to the exiles, not to the nation of Israel or Judah. They no longer exist. They've been there for many years up to this point. 70 years is a long time. How many... Hmm. This is a loaded question. How many of you are under 70? (laughs) That's probably a better... Okay, so I just called the rest of you out. 70 is a fairly long time. Am I I correct? 70 is a lot of life. Typically in the United States, the average American lives to be, and it changes from year to year, but around 75, give or take. 70 is a lifetime on earth. Actually, for, Jesus, for the exiles, life expectation wouldn't have been that great. You're talking 40 or 50 years at best. If you were one of the exceptions to that, you could live in 70s and 80s, but you are a rare exception. 70 years in exile. But see, what he's indicating is not only had they been dead like dead bones in exile, 
They were dead before they went into exile. They just had convinced themselves they were alive and that God was blessing them because they still had Jerusalem and the temple and property and lands. There could be no reasonable hope at this point that the bones could be part of a living body again, they thought. At least there was no way that the prophet could see any possibility of that happening as he's looking in the spirit across this valley. Oh Lord, only you know that. John Goldengay explains the background to this vision of the dry bones is the sober assessment of their situation. Their bones are dry. In other words, they are utterly and irredeemably dead until we come to the point of acceptance of where we are in life. We can never move beyond it. I see so many people living in denial, telling themselves a lie that what they're doing is okay when it's contrary to God's will for their lives. I see a lot of people living in sin and justifying sinful behavior and that God is okay with it when he is not. I see people walking around believing the lie of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy when God desires to open them to a reality of who he is and breathe new life into them and yet they're not willing to receive it. And so they're dry bones. Biblical scholar Bert Hall explains the question that God asks is, can these bones live again? He says, it is equivalent, do you believe that these bones can live again? See, that's what he's asking. He's asking Ezekiel, do you believe they can? And so the question to you today is depending on where you are, is do you believe that God can do the impossible? And you have to answer that question. Only you and you alone can answer that question. Do you believe your prodigal can come back home even though it seems impossible now? Do you believe that your situation financially can change even though you don't see any other way than where you're currently at? Do you believe that the disease or the situation that you're wrestling with physically is basically the plight you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life? Or do you believe that God can do the impossible? And I'm not saying that if you believe it will happen, but there's a lot of a lack of belief that inhibits the Lord from doing amazing things in our lives. It's, it's not that we have not because we ask not, we have not because we don't believe. There is such a lack of belief in the body of Christ today. You realize that we don't see the miracles or acknowledge the miracles that happen in the world around us because we don't believe anyway. And so we're blinded to the supernatural God who does supernatural works. Do you believe these bones can live again? You see, God puts us in situations to see, where are you with me? Do, 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 do you believe that I have the ability to do something that you could never comprehend, but it's going to be amazing? The prophet answered the challenge to faith by saying that his faith was small, but God the God of his faith was great. Only you know, Lord. What was humanly impossible with man was impossible with God. Listen to Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 19. Jesus has had this experience with his disciples. He's doing travels and speaking and healing and raising the dead. He's doing amazing works. And there's a guy who comes to him. We, he's known as the rich young ruler or the rich man or some, some person of means comes to him and he asks them the question, Lord, teacher, master, what must I do to have eternal life? You know what Jesus does? He rattles off some of the Ten Commandments. 
because he knows the issue with this young man isn't that he's not doing the right things, but he's just going through the motions of religion. And so he says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, and he fills in a few other blanks, and the guy says, I've done all of that. What else must I do? And then Jesus looks him in the eye, or at least I believe he did because we aren't told he looked him in the eye, but I believe Jesus always looked people in the eye (laughs) because I believe he gazed into their souls and expected them to gaze into his so they could see who he really was. He says, okay, here's what I need you to do. Go back home. Sell all of your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor and then come follow me. He says the rich young ruler, this rich man, this young man walked away sorrowful, dejected, because I think he realized at that moment in order to receive eternal life, he had to give up something that was more important to him than eternal life itself as well. Is there anything more important to you than eternal life itself that you would have to walk away sad and dejected if that's what God called you to give up? See, he was a dead man walking because he was rooted in something that was not eternal. Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for the rich person to enter, my king, or enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, it says, were astounded by this statement. And then they asked the question to Jesus, then who in the world can be saved? You see, because they realize the substance of what Jesus is saying is more than just about money or possessions. They realize it means giving up everything to make Jesus everything. And our churches pews and chairs are filled with people that have not been willing to give up everything. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Jesus says. Jesus answers the question. He says he looked at them intently. Now I want you to think of what that would look like. He looks at them like he's like like you do with your kids sometimes. Look at me. Just look at me. Listen to what I'm going to tell you. He looked at them intently and he said, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Instead of resisting God's command to prophesy prophesy to the bones, Ezekiel obeys. He doesn't question God beyond only you know, Lord. He, he, he does exactly what God calls him to do. He says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. That's all. He just spoke out loud with ordinary words, no magic, no secret incantations, no conjuring tricks with bones, Just the living power of the word of the living God invading the valley of the shadow of death. Simple words with simple faith can make dry bones reassemble. The second part of this are lifeless bodies. So he obeys. The bodies, the the, the skeletons come together. My guess is the bones were scattered. Wild animals maybe had gone through the valley in this vision and had eaten whatever flesh hadn't rottened off and and they probably took a leg bone and put it over here and an arm bone and put it over there and so these bones are scattered across the valley and yet they begin to reassemble into the person that they once were from across the valley until you have all of these bodies laying flat on the ground. But there's one missing component. 
you can reassemble a body and there still be no life. Biblical scholar Christopher Wright describes what happens in response to Ezekiel's obedience to prophecy, to prophesy to the dry bones in the valley. Listen to what he writes. Suddenly, as the miracle of reconstruction proceeds before his astonished eyes, all, it all suddenly grinds to a halt. The bones have become nothing but lifeless corpses, a remarkable reversal in its own way, but no great advance in their previous condition. You can be not dry bones, but flesh, and still be dead. Maybe you aren't as dead as you were as dry bones. Maybe you aren't as far advanced in the death process, but you're still dead. You're still dead. Many a fantasy movie has scenes of armies of the dead being resurrected, but still remaining lifeless unless given some sort of incantation or summons to become animated to life again. It is Ezekiel who is given the command and the authority to speak not only to the bones, but to the wind. We have a similar example of this in the New Testament with Jesus' resurrection of his friend Lazarus. Listen to this. So, so Mary and Martha have a brother by the name of Lazarus. It was a somewhere, it was a family that Jesus would frequent and go and visit on a regular basis. They were close friends of his. So message comes to Jesus while he's out traveling. He's a couple days journey away. That his friend Lazarus is, really sick, Lazarus is really sick and that Jesus needs to come right away. Because see, Mary and Martha and Lazarus know what Jesus' ministry is all about. It's signs and wonders in the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God looks like in resurrecting life and bringing healing to broken bodies. And they just know if Jesus would come that Lazarus would be okay. But it says in the story that Lazarus died because Jesus didn't come immediately. As a matter of fact, by the time Jesus had gotten there, Lazarus had been in the tomb, wrapped in the burial cloth, laid out on the slab for four days. I ask you, is God ever late in answering your call? And there the lifeless body of Lazarus lay on the slab. And by the time Jesus gets there, the mourners, the professional mourners, in addition to the family members, are there wailing for a period of at least seven days as was custom to the Jews. And seeing all of this, the human side of Jesus is overcome with compassion and emotion. It says he weeps. Weeping is not just a small trickle of the tear. It's a gasping and a groaning that some of you may be familiar with. And once he gathers his composure, he says this in John chapter 11, verse 39. Roll the stone aside. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible by now. And Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see the God's glory if you just believe? What is the, what is the factor here? If you just believe. Do you think I can make this dead man's rotten corpse live again? So they rolled the stone aside and Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. Why? Because there's a doubt in the crowd that Jesus is the son of the living God. 
There are religious leaders that have been following Jesus from town to town, ridiculing him, mocking him, trying to trip him up. And there are people even in the town of Bethany where, Jesus, where Lazarus is laid to rest that have never seen a dead man, especially after four days, come back to life. What did I tell you earlier? If you don't start the resuscitation of an individual within the first five minutes, the brain starts to die. Lazarus is beyond five minutes of resuscitation by a factor of four days. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped with a headcloth. Just picture. Have you ever been wrapped up head to foot? I'm not great at balance as I'm getting older. <laughs> a lot more wobbly and unbalanced than I ever have been in my whole life. As a kid, I could hop around and keep my balance. Can you imagine a middle-aged man, maybe in his 30s, 40s possibly, come out, bound head to foot, having a head cloth. He can't see where he's going. My guess is if his eyes are open and the cloth is transparent enough, he could tell where the light is emanating from because the stone is rolled away from the tomb. And so he's just hopping out like in a sack race, you know. And Jesus says, unwrap him and let him go. Without the breath of life from God, we would have no existence at all. And further, without Christ, we have no eternal life. And still further, without the Holy Spirit, our life remains stagnant and without power. You know the key factor in the bones and the lifeless bodies was this one thing. It wasn't just Ezekiel's obedience to God, but it was God himself. Because what brought life to the body? Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so that they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies, and they all <gasps> came to life and stood up to their feet, a great army. Do you know the word for breath and wind and spirit is the same word in the Old Testament? It's called ruach. You have to get that in the back. Ruach. It's mentioned 10 times in these 14 verses. Did you know that? Do you know the word ruach is the same word for spirit of God? Ruah of God. Genesis 2, 6 through 7. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered the land. And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the ruach of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, the Spirit of God. Psalm 36, or 33, verse 6. The Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created. He breathed the word, ruach, and all the stars were born. John 20, verses 19 through 22, the equivalent Greek word for ruah is pneuma. Pneuma. That Sunday evening, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them, the resurrected Christ. 
Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he saw the Lord. As, as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he <sighs> breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. One final comment before we move on. Christopher Wright references the resurrection of Christ. He writes, The Lord himself, the freshly risen to his feet, where he had lain among the bones of the dead, adopts simultaneously the posture of Ezekiel in summoning the breath of God and the posture of God himself in commanding the breath of the Spirit to come upon the disciples. They had believed in Christ, but had yet to receive the power of the living God. And so, Jesus breathed, and I can see him. And the breath pours over them. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus is now risen from the grave, he has ascended to the Father, and he tells them to go back into Jerusalem and wait for the Helper that it will come to you. And what happens on the day of Pentecost? Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. We get to chapter 2. They're still in that upper room where Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. And now the day of Pentecost happens. And something like a mighty rushing pneuma enters the upper room. And flames of fire rest over each of them. And the presence of God and the life-giving spirit of God imbues them with more than they could ever imagine. Do you think they could have ever conceived this? Writers like John and, and Paul and Peter in the New Testament said these are the things the prophets of old had only dreamed of is that God's spirit would be poured out upon all flesh and that life would be given to them that they so desperately desired. What kind of a God do we serve that desires to breathe the breath of life into us? To give us more than we could ever ask for because he is that kind of a God. but he cannot do for you what you are not open and willing to have him do. Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, he said he was unable to do miracles there. Why? Because of their lack of belief. Oh, that God would step into the presence of his holy people, at least those who are called by his name, if he stepped in now and asked us these difficult questions that seem impossible, what would our answer be? Can your marriage be resurrected from the dead? Can your long-lost child come back home and get to know the Lord again? Can the loss of income be replaced? Can, can, any number, can, can the person who is so addicted to alcohol or drugs find freedom? Yes. Yes. He desperately wants us to see that. But he can't show you what he longs to show you if you do not have eyes that are willing to see. We are our own worst enemy when it comes to our relationship with God. And trust me, I know that firsthand. I'm going to call our worship team forward to close this out today, but I want to leave you with this story. Billy Graham before he died. He was about 92 years old, and he was really in advanced stages of Parkinson's disease, and he wasn't going out anymore. 
um, he was staying at home for, most, for the most part. Wasn't doing public uh, speaking engagements or anything. In January, a month before his 93rd birthday, there were some leaders of Charlotte, North Carolina, who invited their favorite son, Billy Graham, to come to a luncheon in his honor. He initially hesitated about going to that luncheon uh, because of his struggles with Parkinson's disease, but the Charlotte leaders said, we don't expect a major address, just come and let us honor you. And so he relented and agreed to show up. After all these wonderful speakers got up and spoke these glowing messages about Billy Graham and the impact he'd made on their lives, Dr. Graham stepped to the podium, he looked at the crowd, and he said this. I'm reminded today of Albert Einstein, the great physicist, who this month was honored by Time magazine as the man of the century. Einstein was once traveling from Princeton on a train when the conductor came down the aisle punching the tickets of every passenger. And when he came to Einstein, Einstein reached into his vest pocket, but he couldn't find his ticket, so he reached into his trouser pockets. It wasn't there. He looked in his briefcase, but he couldn't find it. And then he looked in the seat beside him, but he still couldn't find it. Well, the conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Einstein says, nodded appreciatively, and the conductor continued down the aisle punching tickets. And as he was ready to move on to the next train car, he turned around and he saw the great physicist down on his hands and knees looking under his seat for his ticket. And the conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, don't worry. I know who you are. It's truly no problem. You don't need a ticket. I'm sure you bought one. And Einstein looked at him and said, young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. Having said that, Billy Graham continued, you see the suit I'm wearing today? It's a brand new suit. My children and my grandchildren are telling me I've gotten a little slovenly in my old age. I used to be a bit more fastidious. So I went out and I bought a new suit for this luncheon and one more occasion. You know what the occasion is, he asked the crowd? This is the suit in which I'm to be buried. But when you hear I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, I also know where I'm going. May your troubles be less your blessings be more, and may nothing but happiness come through your door. Life without God is like an unsharpened pencil. It has no point. May each of us have lived our lives so that when our ticket is punched, we don't have to worry about where we are going. And may we lean into God who gives the breath of life and purpose and meaning to everything we are and to all he desires for us. If you're tired of wandering aimlessly, even as a believer in Christ, because the ride you're on has become monotonous and you quite frankly are just burnout, God didn't call you to a life of burnout. He called you to a life of abundance. If you're here this morning or watching today or listening on the radio, know that God loves you. And he desires more for you than you could ever desire for yourself. And if you will, just open your life to his very breath. Allow him to resuscitate you to new life. Oh, Father, in this place, <laughs> we honor you, but sometimes we don't know how. 
Sometimes we get in the way of our honoring because we think it has to be like this or like that. God, you know our hearts. And so rather than jumping through hoops of religion, help us to know that all we have to do is say, Lord, here I am. And to be open to whatever you have for us, even if it seems impossible, knowing you're the one who will provide. Transform us today. Manifest your holy presence in this place. I pray that sicknesses will be healed and people will be delivered this moment within an earshot of your holy word. I pray that relationships would be restored in the name of Jesus. I pray, God, that jobs and income would not be sought as a provision, but God would only be given as a provision from your holy hand and people would trust in you. Forgive us where we falter and fail and doubt. Help us to have belief and to know that you truly are the ones with the answers. Lord, only you know the answer. And help us to be obedient to everything you call us to, even if it seems ridiculous. And we ask all this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.